I'll invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 23 today. I'm actually going to, let's start reading in verse 13. So Matthew 7, verse 13, we'll just remind ourselves of, of some of the context here. So Matthew 7, verse 13, it says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When Martin Lloyd-Jones preached verses 21 to 23, he began his sermon saying that these surely are in many ways the most solemn and solemnizing words ever uttered in this world, not only by any man, but even by the Son of God himself. Indeed, these, these verses, 21 to 23, they, they are verses that can be troubling to consider because they reveal the fact that people can be so self-deceived about their eternal condition that they will one day stand before the Lord for judgment, expecting to meet him, recognizing him, and calling him Lord, and yet they will, in fact, be condemned. We find out in these verses just how broad the wide gate and wide path are, such that it includes even many, as Jesus will say, Uh, who think themselves to be good and right with the Lord, but who, in fact, are not. And when we think about God's judgment, when we think about eternal condemnation, it's a heavy enough thing to consider, even when we think about that being poured out upon those who are just blatantly wicked, those who have no desire uh, for the things of the Lord or for righteousness, those who even would, uh, would blaspheme Christ openly. Even that's a heavy thing to consider, that they would face uh, eternity under God's wrath in hell. But I think it is particularly difficult to consider this kind of judgment, to consider somebody who is under this kind of deception and delusion. And as those who are here who would eagerly confess that Jesus is indeed Lord, I think these words cause us to stop in our tracks and to pay attention and to listen up and to give them consideration. I think that's part of the purpose of why Jesus has this here, is for us to stop and and to just take stock here for a moment. 
Jesus tells us in verse 22 that this problem that he's talking about here is not relegated to just a couple of people over the course of history. He refers rather to many who are subject to this kind of delusion about their profession of faith in him. Many commentators point out the fact that uh, Jesus probably has in mind here especially uh, the, the false prophets that he mentions in the previous paragraph. That would certainly fit with the description in verse 22, which we'll get to in a moment. But it remains, even if that's primarily who he has in mind here, it remains a warning for all of us. If those who would do great works in the name of Jesus can be deceived by those works, how much more should we all pay attention, even those of us who don't claim to have done great works in the name of Jesus? So I say these are difficult, troubling, disturbing words in some ways. However, this teaching is given here ultimately not to just leave us disturbed. It is not here simply to, uh, to bother us and trouble our souls, but rather it is here to help us so that you and me and all of us might not be what Jesus describes here, that we might escape this fate, that we might not fall under this kind of delusion that Jesus describes here, that we might snap out of this self-delusion. It's not meant to leave you in permanent uh, doubt about your status before God and your standing. But again, it is here. Christ is giving this uh, information. He's sharing these words with his disciples, with his church, with his people, with you. Again, that you might escape this, that you might have confidence. Again, as we think about the broader context of the last part of this Sermon on the Mount that began in verse 13, Jesus is giving a number of different warnings and admonitions concerning entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And particularly what he's talking about here when he speaks of those who would, um, who, 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 who he will deny entry to, these people who are uh, deceived, uh, he's talking about the final judgment. When these folks will stand before him and answer and are they going to end up going into his eschatological consummated kingdom or, or will they be consigned to the lake of fire um, so he's looking ahead to a future judgment a future reality so it's helpful i think to keep in mind what we often call the now and the not yet reality of our salvation that as those who believe in the lord jesus christ we enter into the kingdom of heaven now by faith in christ we are in the kingdom we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom but we have not yet entered into the fullness of all things that God has promised to give his people. There is an inheritance that we've not yet entered, that is being kept for us, that we are awaiting, that we are looking ahead to. And it is that that Jesus is talking about now. And so it's clear here, it's obviously important that we would have clarity on what genuine Christianity is. And these verses go a long way in helping us to gain some of this further clarity. And so that's what we're looking at today, gaining further clarity on genuine Christianity so that we might avoid this kind of self-deception that we find here. So we're going to look at two truths to help you avoid self-deception about your salvation. And the first one is understand that a true Christian will produce good fruit. A true Christian will produce good fruit. 
Uh, there are so many people who simply do not make this connection, and there's a broad range of reasons. Uh, some people, they just want their ticket to heaven to be punched, and then they can just carry on in their sinful way doing whatever it is they desire to do. Uh, they're basically willing to affirm almost anything that you tell them to affirm as long as they can carry on doing basically whatever it is that they desire. As long as Christianity doesn't become too invasive to them, they'll affirm whatever really needs to be affirmed. Or others might affirm that being a Christian does mean that there should be a change in the life of the believer. But then they fill in what that looks like with their own understanding. Their own understanding of what the Christian life ought to be. The fruit that they are looking for isn't the will of the Father, as we'll see Jesus say here, but it's their own understanding. They, they, here's what I think this should look like. That a Christian will indeed produce good fruit is something that Jesus has already taught us here. I think we've, we've seen this throughout. We can go back to the Beatitudes. But even just in the paragraph that we looked at last week, talking about false prophets, how do we know who they are? Well, we look at their fruit or their lack of fruit, their lives and their teaching, their doctrine. Of course, we look there that this is true not only of false teachers, but of Christians in general, of professing Christians in general. They will produce fruit. A good tree bears good fruit, whereas the bad tree bears bad fruit. And so Jesus, I think, is making much the same point here, although with different words. So verse 21 he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the type of person that Jesus is talking about here is a person who makes a profession of faith in Christ Jesus. He or she calls him Lord, right? That's a true an accurate statement of Jesus and who he is. He is indeed Lord. We should confess that. This person Jesus is talking about is happy to make that confession. But this person does not go on to produce fruit, namely the fruit of obedience in their life. They are mere professors of true religion, meaning they profess with their mouth to hold the true religion, but it's nothing more than that. They possess what James calls a dead faith. They are correct, of course, that Jesus is Lord. But then again, we know that even demons understand that. Right? When Jesus walked the earth in the incarnation, he, Jesus, the, the demons, when they would speak to him, they knew exactly who he was. They would refer to him as the Holy One of God and so on. They, they know, they affirm who Jesus is. But true saving faith will result in a person not only affirming that and believing the right things about Jesus, but we'll also see in that person fruit that is produced. And that fruit is described here as doing the will of, Jesus says, my Father who is in heaven. So again, we see it's not just doing whatever I think happens to be the right thing, whatever I think should please God or that God would like, but rather it is seeking to understand and to obey the revealed will of God that is laid out for us in Scripture. And when I say the revealed will of God, I'm saying what God has revealed to us in His Word that He desires of us, that is His will for us. The, the idea of seeking God's will has been so very corrupted to where we're trying to find His secret will. 
We're trying to figure out what God's secret desire is for me. That's not found in Scripture. We have to try and figure it out by, you know, throwing fleeces out or reading leaves or whatever it is we're trying to do. We're trying to figure out this secret plan he wants, and we become terrified that we're going to go left when he really wants us to go right. But then we look to Scripture, and there's no clear uh, indication that we should go right or go left. We seek to apply all the biblical principles, and there's still two options before us. Right? This becomes corrupted. I don't think... This is not, um, Jesus is not saying that we can't move until we're absolutely certain that Jesus wants us to step off the stage this way or that way. It's talking about the revealed will of God that he has given us in, in Scripture. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to God. There are secret things we don't know that belong to him. He has not revealed to us. But Deuteronomy goes on to say he's given us his word. He has given us certain things. And we are to make ourselves... Uh, our business, it make it our business to try to understand, of course, the, the will of God and, and to walk in light of it. And this is really what Jesus has been doing throughout this Sermon on the Mount. He has been teaching us about the law of God and about righteousness, true righteousness, and what it means to, uh, what true righteousness is and what it means to practice true righteousness. He's revealing to us something of the will of God for us. This is what his people will be concerned with. This deception Jesus is talking about here, there's different ways in which a person could be deceived in this way. Different ways in which a person could call Jesus Lord, but then not end up going on to produce fruit. It could be through a, uh, a form of antinomianism. If you, if you are not familiar with that word, it's, I think, a helpful word to add to your vocabulary, to your uh, theological vocabulary. It means against law. Anti, you know that, and then namos is law, antinomianism. It means to be against law. This can come in various forms, but it's basically the idea that grace sets you free from any obligation to God's law at all. Since salvation is fully of God's grace to us, then works have, have absolutely really no significance to the Christian life, really whatsoever. Last week we discussed the importance of distinguishing between faith and works. That's important, but this error really completely divorces the two altogether, removing the connection between saving faith and what will follow, namely, fruit. Antinomianism really throws works out. It's just irrelevant in all of this. Now, someone can have an elaborate doctrinal conviction about uh, antinomianism. They might be convinced that's what the Bible teaches. Of course, I'd say they're wrong. I think this is very clear right here. But one could also be an antinomian without really realizing it. They could be functionally that way. Functionally, having no need for, having no concern for God's laws or God's commands. Again, they think it's just enough to just punch my ticket to heaven by perhaps praying some sort of prayer. I'll make whatever affirmation you need to make, and then I just move on with my life and do whatever. Many people do think this way. You'll make some sort of acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship but it doesn't result in fruit being produced, and they may not even see it as necessary. 
Usually they don't. Obviously they don't. But there are other ways other than this kind of antinomian way of falling into this trap. Others will be concerned about good works. But they seek to do good works of their own making. They're not concerned with finding what does the Bible tell me is the will of God? What does the Bible tell me are good works? Rather, they just make assumptions about what good works are. They have unbiblical view of what it is that God desires of the person. So I think there's different ways people can do this. I, I think of liberal Christianity, for example, so-called so Christianity. Uh, liberal Christians will talk all day long about loving our neighbor, right? You're to love your neighbor as yourself. They love that. They'll talk about that. It sounds good because, of course, the Bible tells us we're to love our neighbor. But then they insert their own understanding of what it means to love your neighbor, right? They tell us things like loving your neighbor demands that you accept all manner of wicked lifestyles without any sort of judgment about it. This is what it means to love your neighbor. Of course, that's not the will of God. That's not what Scripture teaches. So it might sound good to some, but it's not the will of God. We've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, they, they are put forward as um, a contrast. They're used as a contrast throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, they think that they serve God Almighty. They think that they are in line with Abraham and with the Old Testament saints. But in fact, they oppose his will and they are nothing but hypocrites, as we've seen over and over, especially in chapter 6. And so it is with many who profess Christ to be Lord. They think all is well with the Lord Jesus and them. They think everything's going to be fine when they stand before the Lord. But they are hypocrites in their confession, what they say with their mouth. It does not line up with their life. So again, it's important we remind ourselves that Jesus, of course, has come to save sinners and that a sinner is justified, is declared righteous by God as an act of his grace, that he pardons, forgives, justifies sinners as an act of his grace, and that that is received simply by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not by any works at all whatsoever. No works uh, contribute to our reception of God's gift of salvation. They don't contribute, they don't improve upon the justification that we receive when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also know that Jesus, God not only uh, justifies sinners in this way, but he is also committed to the sanctification of his people to make his people not only declare them righteous, but also to then go on to, to produce righteousness in them, to make his people more holy. And so it is, those who are justified by God's grace through faith alone do and will go on to produce fruit. Go on to, to do the will of the Father. Of course, this is not saying that the Lord's people will go on to perfectly accomplish the will of the Father. We're aware, even in the parable of uh, the sower, when Jesus talks about the good soil is where the seed lands and produces fruit, he says there that there's going to be different amounts of fruit produced in different people. Not everyone produces even the same amount of fruitfulness in their life. I think he, 
It's 30, 60, 100 fold or something like that. He uses three different increments there of fruitfulness. But the, the, the common bond between all good soil is that there will be fruit that is produced in them. Again, Jesus has been explaining this, this will of the Father, this fruitfulness to us throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We are not those who set aside the law and the prophets, but we are those who seek to obey the law of God out of gratitude for the grace that we have been shown in Christ. And so the error of those in verse 21 is that for whatever reason, they don't have concern, these people, these people who claim to confess Jesus as Lord, they don't have concern for matters of righteousness. They have not concerned themselves with the Father's will. Again, though they confess that Jesus is Lord with their mouth. So this is a very real danger. I don't think it's hard to see how this this error is appealing to the flesh. I mean, who wouldn't desire just a get-out-of-hell-free card that, you know, that we can just carry on living by impulse or doing whatever we feel like doing and, and we're going to go to heaven when we die? I mean, you can see how the flesh might grab onto that. That's not difficult to understand. It would be easy to want it to be that way. Again, we'll make a mental affirmation of almost anything if it means that it's a guaranteed you know, ticket to heaven and, 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 and I, as long as I don't have to do a whole lot, I'll basically affirm whatever you want. We also know that many in the church, many Christians, professing Christians, they've preached Christ in this way. They've preached salvation in this perverse way. They've told people, just pray a prayer and you're in. And there's really nothing more to be said about it. And if you ever doubt that, then just here, I'll write down the date and time stamp in this book and just remember, you prayed this, God said he'll save anyone who prays this, who prays, calls out to the Lord, you called out this one time, it's written here, here's witnesses, and God, God's not a liar, is he? You did this one time, and that's it. As long as you've done this, you're in. Some such people might argue, well, it's better to obey God, but they won't insist upon it. Some would say that if you insist, if you tell any Christian at all that they ought to obey, if you have any sort of obedience language at all, no matter how you word it, that you're putting that Christian under law, under some damning law, that you're, you're betraying grace the moment you talk at all about obeying the Lord or the will of God or these such things. But the Bible is clear over and over again that a true Christian, a disciple of Christ, is one who has been born again and there will be fruitfulness. There will be obedience. Listen to 1 John 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So it's important that we don't be fooled here. Christ's people are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness as he began the Sermon on the Mount. 
And so we see here this danger of a mere faith, a mere uh, acknowledgement with lips that is essentially empty in the end. And we see that true Christians will produce fruit. There will be concern with doing the will of God. And this is an important truth to understand in order to avoid self-delusion, self-deception. The second truth I want to look at to help us avoid self-deception is understand that a true Christian will not place their hope in their works. A true Christian will not place their hope in their works. So there will be fruit in the life of a believer. We've just seen that. That's clear. But a true believer does not rest their hope upon those works. Does not point to those works and say, that's the the grounds upon which I stand. Evidence and proof that I belong in heaven. This can be a tricky concept to grasp here. The importance of and the presence of fruit, but not hanging your hopes upon that fruit. So let's look at verse 22. There's a chilling, I think it's a chilling objection here. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So this objection comes here. Lord, did we not do the will of the Father? Look at these things we've done. This is not here a group that is completely unconcerned about the things of the Lord, you know, has no place for it at all. In fact, they've got various good deeds that they would like to bring forward here to the Lord as evidence, as proof that they should be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet, for such people, Jesus says that the reply is going to come, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus doesn't challenge here this claim that they've done impressive works. Even miracles. Later in Matthew 24, verse 24, Jesus warns that false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. The point here in verse 22 is that these people have done many things in the name of the Lord. Even apparently great works. And yet they are nevertheless condemned by Christ. It is indicating to us that there will be great men, supposedly, in the church who will preach and prophesy great things and yet don't belong to Christ. Who will even perform great and miraculous deeds and yet do not belong to Christ. I think of uh, Judas might be a helpful example Presumably, he went out with the 72, all the other disciples and others, and they were given authority and power to perform miracles and cast out demons, and they preached, and they did this, and they, you remember they came back and they were amazed at these demons submitted to them. Judas was part of that number. He was part of that group. And yet, of course, we, we know how it ended for him. There are people who are self-deceived thinking that all is well because of some of the works they do in Christ's name. And they think that this is why they should be permitted access to Christ's consummated kingdom. And so I think this is the key here. This group of people, they don't understand their rejection by the Lord on the last day. 
They don't understand that. And so they, they reply, they respond by saying, but look at these good things that we've done. And so I ask the question, what, are, what is their hope here in this moment? What are they appealing to? Why should, why, should you, why should Jesus let them in? They say, look at all these things we've done in your name. Great things even. Their hope ultimately is in themselves. Their hope is in the good things they've done, the fruit they believe they have produced here. So yes, true Christians will produce fruit, but Christians do not place their hope in that fruit. So imagine for a moment that you're the one who's standing before the Lord Jesus on that great day. And you're asked why you should be permitted entry into his eschatological kingdom. I'm not, I'm not saying this is how it's going to work, I, I just, but just work with me for a moment. Imagine you're asked, why should you be permitted entry? What would your answer be? Just think about that for a second. Answer to yourself. What would your answer be? Why should you be permitted entry? It should not be that clearly I belong here because of all of these things I've done in your name. That's what these people are saying, and they're ushered out. They're commanded to depart. Rather, the answer should be along the lines of, the only reason I should be permitted entry is because you, Lord, have performed all that is necessary for sinners to be forgiven and made worthy of entry. And your word promises that all who place their faith in you and in your work will be pardoned and granted eternal life. They'll be graciously given the blessing of salvation, everything needed for entry. Your word reveals that righteousness, the righteousness required for entry, is your righteousness and that it is imputed, given, gifted, credited to sinners who just believe in you. By faith, I'm a sinner who has no hope of entry other than that your blood is sufficient to ransom sinners and God has promised that all who look upon you in faith will be forgiven and are indeed justified. That's the only reason. That's the grounds of my hope. There is fruit in a believer. It does provide us with evidence that one has been born again and belongs to Christ. But for the believer, that fruit is not the grounds of our hope of heaven. Our hope remains always and forever God's grace in Christ Jesus. So we are those who ought to recognize that whatever good might come out of us in this life, whatever fruit, it is the result of God's gracious work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even as we are striving for holiness, as scripture calls God's people to, we never make our progress the source of our hope. And so this is a, this is a key when we're thinking about the matter of assurance of our salvation. If you struggle with assurance of your salvation at times because you have trouble seeing your progress, 
you examine yourself and the fruit is mixed with a lot of awful things. You look inwardly and you see darkness within. You see sinfulness within. This is one reason we cannot make that the source of our hope. We have to then look outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves, to Christ. We look beyond ourselves to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And so you say, when you are looking internally and you say, it's a mess inside, and I struggle to see the fruitfulness, then you again look to Christ Jesus and you remind yourself, my only hope of heaven is him and what he has done. This is as true today in this low state in which I see nothing but awful, at least that's all I can see when I look at myself, but it is the same on my very best day when I've been able to spot fruit in my life. My hope only ever and always is that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners of whom I very well may be the foremost. That's where you root your confidence. In the promise of God to save all who believe in Christ Jesus. Don't ever, ever put your hope and confidence in your good works, in your accomplishments, in your performance. This is why you can lift your head when you're having a terrible go of it. When you've fallen into sin again and you're in anguish about it and you're frustrated about it. And that question enters into your mind, would a Christian really do this? You confess that to God as the sin that it is, and you look again to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, my only hope is him, his righteousness. And so you, you, you lift up your head and you carry on. You come to church and you sing of the glory of Christ. This is why we like to sing the songs about what he has done. Not about how much I will surrender, but about how much that he has done for us. That we are covered over in the righteousness of Christ. Because that's our hope. And whether you're having a tremendous day and a tremendous week and you've just been able to focus all day on the things of the Lord and you've prayed for hours and you've read your Bible and everything's wonderful and there's, you know, everything's going well, or whether you're having a terrible day and you're very, very painfully aware of how far short of the glory of God you fall. We come and we come equally together and we praise God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he has accomplished. Do not be deceived that your works are somehow contributing to your salvation. Do not place hope there. And this is the real danger, I think, of the error, some of the errors that we were talking about last week. If you remember back to last week. If, if faith becomes merged with our works and we're justified by our faith that is works as well, if we join those two together then we will end up looking to ourselves and to our own performance and our own faithfulness for assurance because we're justified by our, essentially, our faithfulness, our working faith. We're in danger, great danger, of falling under this very deception that Jesus is warning us about here. Don't be one who would point to your deeds on the day of judgment. So I think celebrate. It's right to celebrate, to be grateful for any progress you might find in the faith. For when you have that desire to read your Bible and to pray, 
when you have the grace of God's conviction when you sin, when you have that excitement to come to church and to praise God and to sing, when you start singing good Christ-centered songs and you're, you're affirming it, it's good to be grateful that you have that desire and yet not to make that the ground of your hope. In verse 23, Jesus gives his response to those who are deceived. He says, and then, I will de- then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus makes it very plain here that these individuals never did belong to him in the first place. He says, I never knew you. It is not that these people lost their salvation. It isn't that they needed a little more effort in sanctification. It's not that, man, if they had just spent a little more time uh, trying to gain fruit, they're just not quite enough fruit. These are people who never entered by the narrow gate. They never truly belonged to Christ in a saving way to begin with. And so even their, their external actions that may have seemed like obedience to God's will, like, again, if we think of Judas going out with the others, They are not actually works produced from faith because they never possessed saving faith. In fact, all along they were workers of lawlessness. They were not dead trees that had been made into good trees by God's grace that then produced good fruit, but rather they were still dead trees and they were trying to hang ripe fruit upon dead branches. And so this awful judgment is declared, I never knew you, depart from me. The words, I never knew you, further remind us that salvation is of God. It is to be known by him. It is to be counted among his people, to be in Christ's sheepfold. This is not suggesting that Jesus has no idea who these people are, but that he does not know them in a saving way. We might ask somebody if they know Christ. And this is a a valid way to speak. In fact, we read 1 John 2, 3 that speaks of how we might know that we've come to know him. But Paul has a very interesting statement in Galatians 4, verse 9, where he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? So he, he acknowledges, yes, believers have come to know God, but then he emphasizes God's knowing of believers. That this ultimately is the, the, the thing that is necessary. Our knowledge of God and even our uh, confidence that we belong, this sometimes rises and falls a little bit. Our understanding, our confidence, our assurance can take a hit and and we're striving to know God more. We, we can understand him better some days and, and our mind's foggy the next. Ultimately, he says, you've come to know God or rather to be known by God. You belong to God. God knows you in a saving way. We find this emphasis and this concept in a number of places. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. John 10, 14, we read this earlier. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 
just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. How well does Christ know his sheep as well as the Father and Son know each other? Further in John 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, this is the key. The key hope for the believer is that Christ is the Savior and salvation is ultimately God's doing. It's his work. Our hope is that God knows those whom he has chosen to save. He knows whom he has elected. And the Son knows whom the Father has given to him. And he has most assuredly done everything to secure their salvation. And that he will in fact lose none of them, but surely save them and raise them up on the last day. And I would add, as we think of the Father and the Son, that the Spirit, who likewise acts in perfect union with the Father and Son, likewise will not fail to apply Christ's redemption to his sheep. Again, our hope is in God's work of salvation, not our own efforts or fruits. When we're struggling, when we're struggling with assurance, again, What is your hope that Christ saves sinners? I have no other hope. I do believe this. Then trust that God's promise will not fail to save those who make this their boast, who make this their hope. And that Christ knows his sheep and that no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand or out of Christ's hand. God has his people secure. He knows those who are his. Again, our hope is God's work of salvation, not in our own efforts or fruit. Even our own progress is ultimately a gift that is given to us, that flows out of our being united to Christ by faith. What is your hope that you would endure to the end? What is your hope in that? Is it in your own strength that you're tough, strong, macho, whatever? Our hope is that Christ, your hope ought to be that Christ knows you and will keep you. And we, even as we labor toward holiness, we do so with that in mind. God promises to save to the uttermost those who believe in Christ. So do not be deceived. True Christians are those known by Christ, born again by his spirit, and who therefore go on to produce fruit. But at no point do true Christians place their hope of salvation in those good works. There is no such thing as a Christian who just has zero concern about holiness There is no such thing as a Christian who has any right to boast in any advance in holiness that they make. It is the God of peace himself who will sanctify you completely and keep you blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. He who called you is faithful, he will surely do it. 
And so on that day when Christ consummates his kingdom, his people will worship him and will ascribe all glory to him. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All glory and salvation belongs to God alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your warnings in your word that they really are given here for your people to correct us and they are given here in your kindness and in your love to your people that we would not walk in ignorance or in darkness. Father, make us those, every one of us, young and old, Make us those who rest solely in your promise to save sinners, those who look to Jesus in faith. Father, make us those who bear much fruit, gladly and abundantly, not seeking to shore up our salvation or do something that is maybe lacking in Christ's work, not trying to make our works the ground of our salvation, or the thing we look to and hope in. But Father, for your own namesake, for your own glory, that you might be honored amongst the people that are holy. Father, be pleased to make us those who bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Father, I pray that you'd help us. Help us to welcome your light as it shines upon us and exposes sinfulness in us. Help us to confess our sin, to mourn our sin, but to not give to depression in these matters, but to look to the Lord Jesus Christ again and again, and to remember that he is a great Savior. <laughs> And that his sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of our sins. The sins of yesterday, the sins of today, and our sins that we will commit in days ahead. Father, we thank you for your salvation that is free, freely given. That we do not purchase it ourselves, but it has been secured and purchased by your son. I pray that we would rejoice in grace and hunger and thirst for righteousness all of our days. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.